If you'll join with me today, our scripture reading is from John 2, 13 through 22. In our Pew Bibles, this is page 887. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Continue in our John series. A little bit different than years past in that we're taking larger sections of scripture. Typically, I, I probably would have just stopped there, but we're actually going through that chapter and into chapter 3. So I'll continue reading, starting in verse 23 and then all the way down to verse 21 in chapter 3. That's the section that we're going to be taking a look at today. Uh, some of you are like, well, that's a lot of scripture to cover, but I'm, I'm trying to get a different perspective because a lot of times we get very myopic. And we look at things through a telescope and just like this one story, but I'm trying to broaden it out a little bit. So last week, we looked at the entire week of Jesus' ministry, starting out from his baptism all the way through those seven days to the wedding in Cana. And hopefully that gave you a different perspective on Jesus' ministry there. So I'm hoping that that's what's happening here. But if you want to dive deep on the cellular level of like the word word in chapter one of John, go for it. Do it. Okay. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Holy Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God." Hopefully you didn't lose anyone there. But the setting, the setting in this story is during the Passover feast when, if you imagine, there are millions of people coming into the city of Jerusalem. There are millions of people coming in, many traveling from afar uh, on this pilgrimage to celebrate the Passover. And the Passover is the biggest religious celebration for Jews People are participating in this from all over, Jews from all over the place. And not only this, but then we find Jesus in the most significant place in all of Judaism. It is the temple. Now, the last time we were told that Jesus made a visit to the temple in Jerusalem during Passover was when he was 12 years old. That is not to say that he never visited between 12 and 30 years old. He probably most likely did, but that's the last recorded event of us hearing of Jesus visiting at that time. And so that's the last time it was recorded. Now John wrote for us here two significant events that are connected to one another in the verses that were just read by Stephanie and myself. Now one of them is a very public, it is a very dramatic event. The other is a very private and a very discreet event. And in this public event, Jesus is making a cord, a whip, and he is cleansing the temple. And then we go to this private event where he, in private, is challenging this religious leader. Now, this temple is magnificent. This is one of the great architectural works that Herod the Great built. It is magnificent. And it says that, yes, it was done in 46 years. But the thing is, is that they never really completely finished it. They kept on adding to it and kept on making it more ornate, kept on making it more beautiful, and it lasted hundreds of years. That it, They kept on building upon it until it toppled in 70 AD after the Romans destroyed it. But they kept on making it more beautiful and more ornate and bigger and all these other things. And so if you just imagine this beautiful, ornate temple that Jesus is saying, like, this thing's going to be torn down. These people are just thinking, like, there's no way. Look at this thing. This thing's taken 46 years to build. Are you kidding me? Then Jesus goes in there. He clears the public place, the public kind of area, square of these money changers and these people selling these animals at inflated prices for sacrifice and it makes him really angry and it's sometimes very appropriate to be angry 
When you're so moved by what you see, it just stirs up anger in you. This is what love does. See, love can't be anything less than stirred up into anger when the object of that love is being maligned, being assaulted, being abused. This is a a righteous anger, right? You think about this, the object of your love. Think about the biggest object of your love, and typically for parents, this is your child. If your child was being denigrated by another person, mama bear's coming out. Get out of the way. That's what love does. Or your spouse. Your spouse is being disrespected, disparaged, being assaulted. What are you going to do? Just stand there? No way. Right? There's no way. So this is this type of anger when when your loved one is being belittled. and, And it's odd that when someone speaks ill of God or ill of the church, that we've become so conditioned to just kind of accept it. And that anger isn't stirred about in the same way as when someone talks about your mama, right? Like, when they talk about your mother, it's like, oh, those are fighting words, right? You go out to the playground, you talk to kids, and they start throwing things against them. Those are fighting words. But then it's weird that you can just come into a church and just criticize it and whatever, and we're just like, oh, okay, cool, whatever. Let's all get along. But when the object of your love is being assaulted, you you can't just sit back idly. There's something being stirred up. Otherwise, that's not a sign of love. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so the disciples are referencing back to Psalm chapter 69, verse 9, and it reads, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now last week, we looked at Jesus' baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples at Pentecost also. It is also available for us today. And part of being a child of God is having this zeal for our Heavenly Father's house for the church for the church of Christ that the church is the bride of Christ now imagine if your bride was being assaulted God's not going to have that so you kind of sense Jesus anger here and for Jesus there was something more to it than just kind of like what's happening around him that he was stirred up to anger there's also this element of him fulfilling the scriptures. Every Jew knew that Messiah would return to his temple with a refining fire. And here's Jesus as a refining fire to purify the worship of God. Look at the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And so do we have this zeal for the worship of God, this zeal to serve God, and maybe... 
maybe we need the whip of the Holy Spirit to go do some cleansing in our own hearts. To clear out all the junk that we've accumulated. Things such as self-sufficiency, idolatry, pride, and whatever it is that is preventing just a pure and simple worship of God. So we see here Jesus cleansing the temple. He is fulfilling prophecy, and he's also giving a a warning. And he's warning that the days of this temple, they're, they're numbered. And these sacrifices that are being offered to God, that there's a new way coming. And he's coming as the Lord of the temple, who will desecrate the temple with his own death, that this temple curtain separating the Holy of Holies from everyone else is going to be ripped in two from top to bottom and is no longer, there will no longer be this barrier between people and God because Jesus makes this way possible that this curtain is torn and that the temple had its time and its place, but Jesus is going to take that place. The temple is no longer going to be needed. Verses 18 and 19, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. No one understood what Jesus said here until after the resurrection. Like, ah, that's what he meant. But they're thinking like, what? Like, how's he going to do this? Like, three days? Are you serious? And what Jesus was telling them that there, there is going to come a day when the place that God is worshipped is no longer going to be in this building. That his presence isn't going to be in that holy of holies, but, but that only in Christ and through Christ that that's the only way you're going to get to God. There's no other way except through Jesus Christ. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No other way to God except through Jesus. And what Jesus did in the temple is this public declaration of the way to God. That he is the Christ. And only through him is there a way to to God. And people believe this. You look at verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But here's a really disturbing verse. I don't know if you guys have thought about this verse. Think about this deeply. Verse 24. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. What? I thought all I had to do was believe, and that was it. But then Jesus has to entrust me? People believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. Now, for some of you, you're like, ah, this guy's going into heresy over here. Let me explain. The Greek word for believed in verse 23 is the same Greek word translated to entrust in verse 24. Same Greek word. Believe, believe. So people who believed in Jesus, but then Jesus didn't believe in them. What? He didn't give himself to them even though they believed in his name. It's not really that hard to think about, is it? Because think about it this way. 
Just because one believes in Jesus' name doesn't mean Jesus has entrusted himself to them. And you're thinking like, there's no way you just said that. That is heresy. How can you believe that, Pastor Albert? And it's very simple. Take a look at Satan. Take a look at all the demons and the followers of Satan. They all believe in Jesus' name, don't they? They can't deny him. They see him. They've been fighting him. They don't want him to die on the cross and resurrect. They know him to be true. They've made every effort to prevent Christ from being Christ. They believe in Jesus' name. But Jesus hasn't entrusted himself to them. You can believe in Jesus all you want, but he is not going to entrust his name to them. Why? Because he knows us. Because he knew all people. He knew them. He knows us. And as long as we are the masters of ourselves, just like Satan and the demons, we don't have a place with Jesus Christ. Jesus will not entrust himself to you, to those who are their own masters. And when Jesus is the master of your life, when you believe him to be the master of your life, then you will be entrusted with him. Because, quite frankly, we can be like demons, can't we? A bunch of little demons that we can believe in Jesus' name. But the problem is, is we don't dethrone ourselves. That we just remain on our own thrones, our, our own masters. And so you won't be entrusted with Jesus, even though you believe. The demons believe. And that kind of belief is a belief that is lacking in trust, in commitment, in allegiance, in loyalty. And so it's a really a false belief. The people who believed in Jesus, they liked Jesus. They liked who he was. They liked what he did. They liked what he taught. They liked that he went to the establishment. And he threw things over like, dude, that guy's punk rock. Like, I love that guy. I be totally believe that guy. I, I want to follow that guy. The problem is they didn't replace themselves in their kingship of their lives with him. They just like him. They just believe that what he did was good, and they like what he teaches, but they haven't replaced themselves. And it's like so many people today. You go out to the lake today, and you ask about Jesus. And they're like, yeah, he was a cool guy. He taught great things. He taught great love. I love that he loved everybody and all these kind of things. But they don't replace him with the kingship. That's the problem. And there are a lot of believers just like this in our world today. They believe they haven't dethroned themselves. Therefore, they are not his children. Those are not God's children because they haven't submitted their lives to him as their heavenly father. So you're not the child. Verses 24 and 25, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. You and I are rottener than we know ourselves to be. And he knows us better than we know ourselves. Jesus knows exactly what is in my heart? What is in your heart? 
And this is what brings us into chapter 3. Going from Jesus cleansing this temple in a very public, in a very demonstrative way in chapter 2, to something that is very private and very intimate in chapter 3. After revealing this, I know exactly what is in your heart. And so then we come to Nicodemus, who Jesus knows exactly what's in his heart. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He is the ruler of the Jews. He comes to talk to Jesus privately. I don't want my bros to know. And something you and I need to know is that by no means are we better than Nicodemus. Because check this guy out. Look at his resume. He is a Pharisee. He will know more about theology than all of us combined. He is a ruler of the Jews. He was in the ruling council. So his reputation, he is above reproach. He is extremely intelligent, extremely well-connected, very good reputation, very powerful. And even Jesus acknowledges him to be a teacher of Israel in John chapter 3, verse 10. So this is a very well-educated teacher of Israel. And he comes privately to Jesus in the night. And this guy addresses Jesus as rabbi. This teacher addresses Jesus as teacher. And Jesus didn't attend the most prestigious religious schools. He didn't go to school in Jerusalem. He doesn't have like a reputable teacher like Paul did with Gamaliel. And people were like, yeah, this guy trained with Gamaliel. They were like, who did Jesus train with? I don't know. Carpenter? I don't know. I don't know who he... And and then we have Nicodemus, this this well-known theologian. And he's addressing Jesus as rabbi. Verses 2 and 3. This... Man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And you notice that Nicodemus didn't even have a question for Jesus in verse 2, but Jesus answers him in verse 3. Like, there's no question. And so you remember from the last verses in chapter 2, Jesus knows us. He knows us. He knows our heart. He knows better about us than we know of ourselves. And so Jesus provides an answer to us that we didn't even know we had questions about. Then Nicodemus asks questions in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. And, and then Jesus essentially gives Nicodemus a similar answer in verse 5, just as he did in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so it appears as if Nicodemus went to Jesus to talk to Jesus, but he didn't really know what, what to talk about with Jesus, but Jesus knew. And so Jesus was like, okay, i got to tell this guy about being born again. And so he says it two different times in two different ways, verses 3 and 5. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And this is not only true, but this is also of utmost importance, as Jesus said, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, in both verses 3 and 5, what Jesus is saying, like, amen and amen is what Jesus is saying about, is saying about this truth. Truly, truly. Like, come on, man. This is really important. Now, unless the Spirit of God is divinely, supernaturally working in someone, that person will be no different than who they were before as far as the kingdom of God is concerned. You will never see the kingdom of God, nor will you ever enter it without the supernatural divine work of God in your life. And the following verses proves Jesus' point. Look at verse 9. Jesus said to him, How can these things be? So, it is very obvious the supernatural did not happen to Nicodemus because he's asking this question. It's obvious he can't see. Jesus said in verses 6 through 8, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And right after, Nicodemus asks, how can these things be? God from heaven above comes down. He gives us spiritual insight. He heals us from our spiritual blindness to let us see and be in the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus' response is, I can't see it. I, I don't get it. Now, how many of us have used John 3.16 to share the gospel with others? It's like every NFL game. Like it's, like everybody knows this one, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so then we elaborate on this verse as we're sharing the gospel, sharing that Jesus Christ comes from God and that God offers us a generous, gracious, free gift of salvation. That Jesus is Savior who, who died for our sins, who rose from the dead, conquering death to be our Lord and our master of our lives. And he is with us. And then the person believes. Believes in Jesus. And then at the end of that conversation, here are some of the most discouraging words one can hear after sharing the gospel. I'm going to try to live a better life. What? You just pulled a Nicodemus. Like you're not seeing. What are you talking about? Well, that person may believe in Jesus, but they really haven't seen the kingdom of God, haven't they? The supernatural really hasn't happened to them, has it? And you can articulate the gospel much more clearly and much more simply and still not have it understood by the recipient. Because you look at Jesus, who better to share the gospel than Jesus himself? And yet Nicodemus comes away like that? And you can share the gospel with the most intelligent person that there is and they still don't get it. And you look at Nicodemus, who has probably incredible logic incredible reasoning skills 
And you can be the most smart, the most educated, and still not experience the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit who takes the scales off of one's blind eyes to be able to see the kingdom of God. Look at verses 11 through 15. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is this story about the serpent and Moses and all this kind of stuff? You have to refer back to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21, starting in verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And this is where we get our medical sign that you see, serpent with the thing. This is where we get that sign. So to Nicodemus, Jesus is referring to the cross. Just as people who sinned and died look to this bronze serpent that Moses put up for salvation, Jesus is ultimately telling Nicodemus, you're going to have to look at the cross. And God will save you. Just as the people in the desert looked at that bronze serpent in the desert and it saved them. And so the way God saves sinners is placing their sin upon the one on the cross. And as people look to Christ in faith and they trust him, they will be saved, healed, forgiven, pardoned for their sin. Just as those in the desert in numbers were when God provided a way of salvation for them for their sin. But at this point... Nicodemus is still blind and he can't see. The truth is right in front of Nicodemus' face. Jesus is telling him these things and he still can't see. And much of it is because of self-sufficiency. Independence. Thinking that his life is all about what I can do for myself. And it prevents him from seeing Now, do you understand why there are so many people around us in our modern society in America who cannot receive the gospel? And it's this. They are self-reliant people. They are not dumb whatsoever. They are very smart. They're just like Nicodemus. They're just self-sufficient, independent. And that blinds us from spiritual things. And there's this false idea that what we do is significant. When there's nothing that we can do independently of God that ultimately pleases God. You can say, well, love pleases God. Not independent of Him, not out of your flesh. Love is not love, as some bumper stickers or stickers or whatever things say. It is not, because you can still believe, but he can still not entrust himself to you, because you are still the king of your own life. You are still self-sufficient. 
you're still self-reliant. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It is a spiritual work, not one that is done out of your flesh. You cannot will something to happen. And of course, we put effort into being followers of Christ. But here's the key difference. Our salvation is not earned through our works. Our efforts are in response to what has happened to us supernaturally, divinely, not to earn what we are hoping for. Now we close with the verse Jesus is pointing Nicodemus to, and it's John 3.16, these verses that are so well known by a lot of people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God Nicodemus sought out Jesus in darkness and here's a question did Nicodemus ever come into the light did he ever see the kingdom of God did he ever trust in Jesus Well, we'll meet Nicodemus again in the Gospel of John at the burial of Jesus. It's in John chapter 19. Fast forward, John chapter 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in a linen cloth with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And so you notice that Nicodemus comes compassionately and lovingly to bury Jesus. But there is no mention of him being a disciple of Christ like Joseph of Arimathea was. Remember that verse from Jesus I do not know you I wonder you do all these wonderful beautiful things you even do it for Jesus in Jesus name you bring 75 pounds of expensive stuff to bury Jesus and you get to heaven and he says like I don't know you man what did you miss man Because at this point of Jesus' burial, it doesn't seem that he has seen the kingdom of God. You do a very honorable and admirable thing, but it doesn't seem he's entrusted with Jesus' name, even though he believed in Jesus. It doesn't seem like he's expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. The three days and I will raise, it doesn't register. And the parallel story of Moses and the bronze serpent saving the people from death is not connecting 
with him, with Jesus on the cross, saving people from death. It's not connecting. Now, I'm hopeful that Nicodemus did eventually see the light. And hopefully he did three days later when Christ resurrected. And he was like, ah, I get it. And I wonder if John purposely left it out here. Left out what happened to Nicodemus so that the question is fresh for each one of us to think about. For those of us who are like Nicodemus, who believe, but haven't been entrusted with his name. For us to look in the mirror and to see, has my life been changed supernaturally? Or am I just still living out of the flesh trying to do good things? Have I been divinely touched by God and entrusted with Jesus Christ as my Savior to share this? That John 3.16 is indeed true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That your eyes are spiritually open. That those scales have been taken off and you believe in Jesus' name and he entrusts you with himself to you. We don't know about Nicodemus. But this is so vital to know about yourself. Do you see? Do you spiritually see? Or are you still blind? And if you are, we can ask for the Lord to remove those scales from your eyes. For that transformation to happen in your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we ask for forgiveness, Lord, for living in our flesh. For those of us who've had this kind of education that Nicodemus has had with knowing the Bible and knowing all the so-called truths of it, but yet still not being entrusted with you. And so, Lord, can you please fill this place with your spirit so that those who have that question, that doubt that that has really happened, that that is indeed happening for them, that those scales are pulled away from their eyes, that they are indeed transformed, that they are indeed entrusted with you. Lord, I I ask God that those who don't know you come to faith in you today. In Jesus' name, amen. For anyone wanting prayer, especially about this. Mike, uh, one of our elders, is in in the front pew here, and Susanna, who's on our council, is also in a front pew here, and they'd love to pray with you. And if you are in need of communion elements, hold up your hand. We can get that to you. We're going to take communion together right now. This wafer symbolizing the broken body of Christ. The Old Testament picture of this is the bronze serpent. And for us, this is Christ on the cross. Broken for us. Providing a way for us. And all those sacrifices that were made in the temple before. That life that was sacrificed for the cleansing of sins. And Jesus going there and saying like that. You don't have to do that anymore. I've paid the ultimate price. It is done. That curtain separating holy of holies and everyone else that, that is gone. 
I've done it for you. We take this in Jesus' name. The fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ shed for us. If there are any inconsistencies in your life now or we want to take this in a respectable way and we just refrain. It's okay. Deal with the things with God. But for those who call themselves children of God, let's take this together in his name. Lord Jesus, we ask God as God who knows us better than ourselves that you would show us how in desperate need we are for you. That if there are any ideas of self-reliance and independence and self-sufficiency creeping into us, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that and that we would dethrone those things, that you, Lord, are our master and our Lord. Thank you, God, for your word and using John as an instrument to share your word with us. In your name, amen.